AMU. American Military University is proud to present the following podcast. Welcome. My name is Dr. Elise Carlson Rayner. I'm doctoral faculty with the Global Security Program with the university. I would like to welcome today Daniel Mahanti. He currently serves as director of U.S. programs for the Center of Civilians in Conflict. He leads research and advocacy projects that promote the adoption of American government policies and practices that enhance the protection of civilians in conflict, including through security cooperation. Prior to this, Dan spent 16 years in the U.S. Department of State. This is where we work together and how we know each other. In 2012, he created and led the Office of Security and Human Rights in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. In this role, Dan oversaw efforts to integrate human rights in U.S. security assistance and arms sales, advance the prevention of recruitment and use of child soldiers, and promote policies related to protecting civilians in conflict. Dan holds a master's from Georgetown University in U.S. national security policy and a bachelor's in economics from George Mason University. He is a Colin Powell Fellow, a term member on the Council on Foreign Relations, a Truman National Security Fellow, and a member of the Searing Committee for the Forum on the Arms Trade. His writings have appeared in The National Interest, USA Today, Defense One, and others. I am so delighted to welcome Dan with me this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to the discussion. So let's start off by talking about should people in the national security community care about human rights in the first place? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think a good one to start with. So I can imagine a lot of your listenership out there in their cars or driving to work or sitting at home, hopefully working on their their homework or their thesis, hearing the word human rights and, and maybe some of them rolling their eyes and thinking, okay, here we go again, talking about the utopian ideal. And we've got some hippie on the podcast who wants to promote this idea that there should be an end to all human suffering in the world. Well, let's disabuse your listeners and ourselves of that notion off the top of the bat and really clarify what we mean when we say human rights. So when I say human rights for the purposes of this discussion, what I'm referring to is, yes, there is a core foundational set of concepts that suggest that all human beings are entitled by virtue of their humanity to a set of both what Isaiah Berlin would call positive and negative liberties. And what I mean by that is they are entitled to do certain things and they are entitled to be free of certain things, primarily free from certain intrusions into their personal and private lives by the government. This is the cornerstone of American political culture. It's the foundation of our government. The Constitution is established on the basis of these negative liberties, and Americans listening will recognize these as our right to be basically free from intrusion into the freedom of expression and assembly and association. It's the way our laws and our legal system were established. No law shall be passed that violates those rights. Well, before World War II, human rights were really a subject of national concern within the boundaries of a state. So in the United States, the rights of American citizens were a subject of entirely domestic political interest. And we had significant political controversies in this country and continue to do so over our own human rights situation. You can imagine the rights of women and civil rights 
women didn't get the right to vote until very late in this country, uh, relatively recently. You know, civil rights is a relatively recent phenomenon in this country as well. But for the international community, it's a much more novel concept, not in terms of the philosophy of human rights, but that states recognized that human rights across borders were a matter of international concern. So in other words, the rights of individuals in other countries should be at least of some concern to people in other countries or governments of other countries. And there's a good reason for that that helps me answer your question. After World War II, when the entire world was reflecting on the damage and the, the catastrophe that was this global conflict, and I don't just mean in Western Europe, I mean in huge parts of Asia and in Africa, they realized that human rights violations had helped to lead to the conflict in the first place, and there was a natural relationship between the way that a government treated its citizens and the potential for global instability. And so they came together and said, this concept of unlimited sovereignty, basically keeping out of your affairs in this, this kind of Westphalian sense, was kind of an outdated concept and really set about acknowledging that human rights were a matter of more international concern. I think a lot of people now recognize that for the national security professional, human rights is grounded in and really fundamentally related to security in a couple of really important ways that give it the importance that national security policymakers and practitioners should not only recognize but take heed of and, and really get to know well. Now you had asked sort of why should the national security practitioner, why should anybody who cares about national security pay attention to human rights? So there's that kind of foundational, I think, connection between the two that matters. And we could talk about that a little bit more. So there is at its core, or at least there was, a, a clear connection in my mind between global stability and international security and human rights. There are a few practical reasons why I think anybody who works in the defense industry or, or defense service, who works in law enforcement, who works in homeland security, who works at the State Department, and certainly anybody who ends up working at the National Security Council or works in national security affairs otherwise, maybe the CIA even, should pay attention to human rights in the context of U.S. national security policy. For one thing, whether they look at it instinctively as part of their job, everybody I know and everybody I worked with in my career at the State Department at one time or another was compelled to deal with the issue of human rights. And a lot of times those who had not prepared for it ended up trying to play the most catch-up. I worked with a lot of people at the National Security Council, for example, maybe people who were on rotation from the CIA, for example, who hadn't really thought of human rights as their issue. This was particularly acute after the Arab Spring when we were really looking at how the U.S. government could actively seek to promote the institutionalization of new protections for human rights in places like Egypt, and not to refer to anybody in particular at the NSC at this time, but uh, just to say that there was a moment in time when they had to really, I think, do a lot of catching up in terms of how they correlated the human rights situation with the decades of U.S. national security policy in that region, which arguably set us back in terms of credibility deficit with the public in those countries when we were then shifting ground a bit and trying to promote human rights. So I think people have to deal with it as a matter of crisis. There's another reason people end up having to deal with it, and that is it has been those circumstances when the executive branch and people in the agencies within the executive branch have tried to ignore it, that the arrest of the American body politic has responded and almost foisted the issue upon them. 
We have a number of laws on the books that govern the way the State Department and the Defense Department operate that set constraints on certain activities based on human rights concerns. Some of your listeners may be familiar with the Leahy Law, which is Section 620M of the Foreign Assistance Act, which dictates that no assistance that's authorized or funded by the State Department shall be used to assist units when the Secretary of State has credible information that they've committed gross violations of human rights. That law and the laws that preceded it came about in large part as a result of executive branch policy that tried to look past the human rights conduct of our partners. So all of that is to say, if you want to try to ignore it, you're either going to have to deal with it as a matter of crisis or you're going to have to deal with it because the Congress basically dictates it. So I think that's also shorthand for the way the American public thinks about the role and responsibility of the conduct of the U.S. government in foreign affairs. I think there's some expectation that taxpayer dollars are not going to be used to support human rights violations abroad. So I think there are a lot of good reasons why national security practitioners should care about human rights. Absolutely. Thank you, Dana. I mean, that was very insightful. And, and let's try to break that down a little bit more. Can you have think of an example or a case study where, you know, I think it's important to, to show the correlation, to show where there's scholarship that says that you can link most conflict to human rights abuses. You look at Rwanda, you look at the former Yugoslavia, discrimination based on religion, ethnic discrimination will often lead to conflict. Can you think of, of an example that w- that's um, you know, illustrative of, of this issue, that we can show the correlation that this will lead to um, domestic or, or international conflict? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So first of all, let me just start by acknowledging the fact that the relationship between human rights and security is is a fundamental one, but it's also a somewhat messy one, right? Because at the end of the day, one of the guarantees that governments provide their citizens is to keep them safe and secure. So that I'm not questioning. That's part of the fabric of society. It's sort of the collective bargain that we make in our social contract with the government. The other side of that, of course, is that they do that without violating previously established human rights. And like we said at the outset, in the United States, we have a constitution that prevents laws related to security from violating those rights. In other places, they rely on other sources when they don't have national laws to say, you are entitled to these freedoms or these liberties. A lot of times they'll appeal to sources of international law to say, okay, we have a law in the books that allows the government to violate my rights, but that's actually against sort of international norms and standards. So I I just want to make that quick point because you'll see in a lot of places where you'll have legal frameworks on, on human rights, but they're nonetheless violated in terms of the way that the international community thinks about it. And you'll see this kind of, this balance has gone completely out of whack where security forces, for example, are political institutions that have been constructed to protect really the the status quo, the, the, the political sort of power of an elite faction. And I think in many of those cases, you're more likely to see situations where the security forces themselves resort to the use of violence out of fear of losing power, which can then result in a kind of cascade of violence that takes off and becomes ultimately a situation of armed conflict. And that has happened in a number of situations and places. Syria, I think, is the most obvious example. Now, there are probably other proximate reasons for the outbreak of conflict in Syria, but I don't think it's without reason to suggest that one of the most important contributing factors to the outbreak of conflict in that country was not only the poor human rights record of the regime to begin with, but the way in which the human rights record 
got worse once the public started to express its demands for better protections of their human rights. It was the detention of young people in Syria and their abuse that led to public outcry. That's a human rights issue. And then once people started to cry out, the government responded with a heavy hand, and you kind of had this situation that unraveled very, very quickly into armed conflict. So all that is to say is that it's wise to pay attention, particularly to certain kinds of human rights violations that may presage worse forms of violence, and in some cases, violent conflict. It's not always the case. Every country has an uneven record on human rights and commits some form of human rights violations in our country we have we have 50 states and hundreds of communities that have their own police forces and it stands to reason that police forces when they are providing security at times resort to sort of excessive use of force or arbitrary detentions these are human rights violations are we going to have an outbreak of violent conflict in this country because of it we have certain controls uh, that prevent that but it's still worth taking a look at i think other places you could look at to say, hey, the situation of the illegitimate use of violence by the state, which we know as human rights violations, certainly has been kind of a predictor of violent conflict. I also just want to quickly note, that's a slightly different proposition than what can happen in terms of human rights violations during the course of an armed conflict, when you've had significant violations of human rights that go unaccounted for, whether in the run-up to a conflict or in the midst of a conflict. And this is where you start to get into questions about sort of what does justice look like after a period of transition in a country. And I think that's another reason to focus on preventing human rights in the first place is that it makes it so much harder to reconstitute the fabric of society when, when people have been violated in, in horrible ways. I think if we're being intellectually honest, we have to acknowledge that there's been a lot learned about the relationship between human rights and post-conflict situations. I would be the first to argue that I think it's important to get back to or to initiate the protection and acknowledgement of human rights in post-conflict situations. I also have to acknowledge, and I think we all should, that there's a body of scholarship that points out that the way you get there has to be very carefully calibrated, which is not to say that people shouldn't have the human rights to which they're entitled immediately. What it is to say is that political institutions, when they've been distorted by the state, tend to also distort the enjoyment of human rights by the public in ways that can lead to destabilization or, or difficulty in stabilizing in the first place. So, for example, when a country doesn't enjoy freedom of the press to begin with and freedom of expression and suddenly are going from a closed society to an open society through a process of transition. If you're not careful in the way that the institution of the free press is built and restored, press outlets can be controlled by political elites or even the government itself, and you can end up with a situation in which the press is not really a free press, it's, it's a press that's used for political purposes. So that's something to be wary of. And I think even in our country, it's worth paying attention to not only the freedoms we enjoy, but that they stay free of political interference and influence in such ways that can really affect the domestic stability of our country. Look at the use of, of Facebook and other social media platforms, even you know, sort of quasi-state-controlled <laughs> media outlets, which have really become a tool for political persuasion instead of an outlet for, uh, for the expression of ideas. Thanks, Dan. This is a really important concept when you have breakdown of institutions, 
And I'm going back to your idea of when you have in conflict or pre-conflict human rights abuses and then during conflict, of course, a lot of societal structures um, break down and then it bleeds into the post-conflict era that is extremely difficult to, to rebuild. There's a scholar, Serena Cosgrove, and she does a lot of work in Congo and demonstrates that the violence against women that happens in conflict, it's been very difficult that it's bleed, it's bled into when there's no conflict still, mm-hmm. you know, but that into the societal structure after the armed conflict has actually gone. I think if there's an issue that, you know, your listeners take up following this out of interest, I think it's this very issue that we've not paid enough attention to how sexual and gender-based violence during times of conflict actually disrupts and makes much harder the process of peace and reconciliation. I think it's a, it's a really important issue. I didn't pay enough attention to it during the course of my career, and I think it's something that the U.S. has to pay attention to if it cares about conflict prevention, but then also peace building. That's so interesting you say that. Do you have a, an example, or was there, was there a moment where you realized you should, as a policymaker, that you could have paid more attention to that for kind of more sustainable policies? I had the benefit of working with some very smart people at the State Department and at the National Security Council who were aware of these issues. And when I became more involved later in my career in U.S. policy relative to certain conflict areas like the Democratic Republic of Congo or Syria, I learned a lot about not only the consequences of some of these horrendous actions and and acts of violence, really using rape as a tool of war, not only against women, but against boys and men in conflict areas. I sort of became more attuned to it through that, but also the role that women were playing in conflict resolution and peace building. I worked with a really talented officer on Syria who really educated me in many ways on the ways that at the community level, women were stepping up to help foster kind of connections that were leading to kind of at least greater resilience in their community against not just violence against women, but also just the conflict in general. So so that was really um, educational. I have to say, I'm not here necessarily in my official role as U.S. Program Director at Civic, but I would call attention to the work that I think some of some of the work that Civic's doing in Nigeria that really focuses on women as a constituency that we see as very important in peace building and in, in conflict mitigation in northern Nigeria. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm still on the learning curve, but I, I do think it's a priority for me going forward. Thanks, Dan. Right after this break, we'll be right back to talk more about the relationship of human rights abuses and conflict. Working in homeland security requires versatile experts to handle domestic and international security issues. A homeland security degree at American Military University offers you the chance to improve your expertise and develop practical knowledge for combating terrorism and security threats to our nation. Learn from experienced leaders in homeland security. Apply today at amuonline.com. Welcome back. I'm here talking with Dan Mahanti, and we're talking about the relationship between human rights abuses and conflict. And now we'll kind of transition into the role of the U.S. It's it's ever-changing in this field. America and American leadership was instrumental in establishing a lot of the human rights multilateral institutions that are being called into question actively today and with new leadership. So, Dan, I wondered if you could talk about what are the current challenges facing American leadership on human rights at present? 
yeah, no problem. Well, I shouldn't say no problem. Uh, this is a very interesting <laughs> question. Small problem, big <laughs> yeah, problem. problem. <laughs> well, let's frame this a little bit in terms of the past as prologue and maybe some context here because I think when we talk about this issue, there can be a tendency, depending on your political persuasion, to read the, the newspapers and say, oh, we're in this brand new era and we're the United States government is suddenly giving up on human rights because of the current administration and some of the actions that it's taken. And some of those, I think, are, are cause for concern, no matter which party you hail from. But let's put this moment in time in a little bit of historical context, because the history of U.S. leadership on human rights, if we're being totally fair and honest, has been inconsistent on some level, consistent on another level, but not necessarily in a good way, uh, from my <laughs> point of view. But either way, it's been affected by changes in our role relative to the rest of the world in terms of our role as a global superpower, if I can use that sort of outdated, highly sort of orientalist term. <laughs> but in any case, and I, I won't give your listeners or bore your listeners with a 10-minute history of the U.S. after World War II, but let me just maybe frame it as simply as I can. After the war, we talked about the fact that world leaders sort of reflected on this horrible catastrophe of World War II and recommitted themselves to this idea of human rights. Well, yes and no. So they did for a brief and shining moment, and the idea, the seed of the idea was born. And I think, frankly, to their credit, a lot of governments and people of countries that had been under the colonial yoke really took a strong leadership role in, in making sure that that moved forward. The United States, for its part, had a clear and important role, for example, in, in the development of the UN Charter and the human rights documents that followed, certainly Eleanor Roosevelt and the Universal Declaration. I know that you know a lot about these issues, and I'd love to get your thoughts. But there was something else that also happened, which was the sudden emergence of a kind of bipolar world order where you had the United States on one hand and you had the Soviet Union on another and you had these kind of competing visions of the world and I think more to the point you had a sort of competing set of phobias that drove action and drove policy. For our part in the United States policymakers were highly concerned about the spread of communism as an idea, as an organizing principle and certainly as a form of government that would compete with what we saw as a so-called sort of more liberal international order that more suited our view and, and set of preferences. And what you had happen was, I think, a set of misguided, several decades of misguided policy that led us to actively undertake interventions in support of autocratic governments who were highly repressive of their own people, but also very heavy-handed in countering competing political factions. In some cases, the U.S. government would characterize those as sort of leftist uh, or socialist challengers. In many cases, they were simply just competing political agendas. And so the U.S., I think, for its part, did a lot of damage to its own credibility on human rights during that period, especially in Latin America, but also in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Chad and Ethiopia and a number of places in Africa and Southeast Asia. There's a whole new set of documentation about the U.S. role and particularly that of the CIA in Indonesia during the, the purge there. So not like for those that are thinking, oh, this is, we're abandoning 50 years of leadership on human rights in the global order. Well, let's not forget the many years of the Cold War between 1945 and the late 1980s when U.S. policy was not exactly friendly to human rights with some exceptions. Following that time, you did have a brief moment where people will describe it as kind of this moment of American leadership, American liberal hegemony, where the U.S. emerged as the unilateral power and suddenly human rights was back on the radar. But even during that time, 
and the periods that followed the so-called global war on terror, you still had a set of preconceived notions about vital U.S. national security interests, especially in the Middle East, that led us to take some pretty large exceptions when it came to the promotion of human rights and the consideration of human rights even in our national security policies. And so there has been this kind of underlying, what I'll call kind of a realist status quo, and I use that term loosely, we can talk about what that means later, but that has kind of led to some pretty broad carve-outs for the U.S. on, on its leadership human rights. So that's kind of the, the national security history. On the institutional side, which you mentioned, the, the role of the U.S. in helping to develop multilateral institutions and kind of the body of, of international law with human rights, absolutely the U.S. has played a role. We've also had a pretty consistent history of what some have called kind of a, an American exceptionalist approach to international law and international institutions where, with some exceptions, we've, we've showed up and participated and, and helped with the drafting in many cases and, and shaped the documents themselves and, and the words. But we've also taken exception to their application here in the United States. And there are some good reasons for that and then there are some contestable reasons for that. But either way, I think if people are talking about U.S. leadership, on human rights, many times critics will say, well, yes, the U.S. is willing to stand up and preach about human rights, but at the end of the day, it hasn't ratified many of the conventions. In some cases, it's actively taken exception to certain provisions in, in human rights treaties. I don't think that's any different than many, if not most countries in some ways, but it is something that's worthy of taking note. What I think is concerning about the current moment is that there seems to be a wholesale revocation of the concept as it applies to U.S. foreign policy at the very top of our government. And you see this symptomatically through our withdrawal from participation, even participation in the Human Rights Council, not just sort of active support. We've taken an active antagonistic approach to the International Criminal Court. And just recently, we've learned that we've stopped responding at all to requests from the treaty bodies about America's own human rights record, which, to my knowledge, we've never done. So that's that, to me, suggests not only a sort of passive tension with these bodies and with the whole idea of international law, but more of a, an open revocation of it. And I think that's damaging because I do think it limits the credibility and the influence the United States can have when it engages others in a what is always intended to be a kind of more collaborative and mutually involved process of dealing with human rights international relations. It makes it very difficult to talk about human rights at all, and not only by the President of the United States, but by our ambassadors, by our diplomats, when the United States is just completely withdrawn from the scene, and I think that could be damaging. I also think it can be very temporary, so we'll see where it goes from here. The other challenge, well, a couple of challenges that I'll mention and I'll, I'll shut up. Uh, so one, look, I don't want to make this a partisan screed. I, I like many civil servants, have worked for administrations of, of from both parties and, and dutifully so, and I think there are a lot of people in the government now who might quietly agree with me, but of course are also dutifully serving this president. So that's something certainly to pay attention to on the border, but also within our own states on civil rights, on women's rights, so something to pay attention to. So I think that's important. And then the final thing I'll just say as, as a challenge is there have been institutional or, or bureaucratic shifts from an emphasis on the role of diplomacy and the role of kind of what I hate 
the term soft power, because I don't think there's a lot of it that's soft, but I think this idea that the U.S. can appeal and be influential through forms that are other than transactional security arrangements, security assistance and arms sales and sort of military to military engagement, which is important, but takes on an outsized role when other kinds of American influence are diminished. And I think if we have fewer of those available options, we have fewer contact points through which we can sort of engage and be influential. So I think that could be something that's difficult to restore when it comes to human rights policy going forward. So that's where I kind of see the challenges right now. Thank you. Human rights diplomacy is very complex, and it's always diplomats and, and officials are always going to be weighing out other priorities, security, trade, and a whole host of other considerations when working internationally or, you know, with their foreign counterparts. You delivered the keynote address to doctoral students at the university, and you said that human rights gives leaders like John Bolton and other U.S. foreign policy leaders heartburn. (laughs) So can you kind of explain that more and, and expand on that? Let's use John Bolton as a proxy for a community of people who I think have legitimate concerns that the United States, by participating in multinational forums like the United Nations, like the Human Rights Council, or by submitting itself to a body of international law that at the end of the day doesn't really seem to hit home or apply or shouldn't apply to American people for concerns of sovereignty. This is not only John Bolton. This is a whole class of people who say, look, at the end of the day, we are the superpower. Our credibility derives from what we do. I'm not showing up in multinational forums. And so if if we want to wield our influence, the best way to do it is to do it unilaterally. And there's actually no need to bind ourselves to the consensus view of what everybody else thinks. And besides, a lot of what these forums include are the participation of states that have horrible human rights records themselves. And so this is nothing more than the smaller powers or smaller states or or less powerful states binding together to try to constrain uh, the U.S. So that's kind of where I think some of that that philosophy comes from. I don't know or think that it's necessarily John Bolton the man or, or any other people who take that perspective actively endorsing human rights violations. I think it's a a matter of difference in the way U.S. foreign policy should be conceived and implemented. I disagree with it strongly because I think it reduces and limits the ways in which the United States can be influential and powerful to an idea that unilateralism is kind of the best way to go. I think we have had success in those forums. I think it's important that we show up And I think it's more important now than ever that we show up as, let's face it, the United States is is not the only kid on the block anymore, so. Interesting. You mentioned realism earlier, and if we could just give a brief explanation of what you mean by that, but then go into this of how do realists think about human rights, and then why do you think their critiques are valid? Yeah, that's another great question, and I know that many of your listeners, especially if they've been studying security studies or, or global security may have some background in in the kind of formal theoretical approach of realism or the theory of realism and its many sort of manifestations. But to kind of really boil it down to its simplest element, I think the realist thinks of things not only in terms of a cynical approach to the world that disposes of all human considerations, but more thinks of things in terms of great power politics and the state as really the object of analysis. We're not talking about 
individuals or leaders or systems or international institutions. We're talking about the way states interact with one another and pursue their interests relative to those other states in ways that they see as most beneficial. And a lot of times it's really about the relationships between governments and efforts that are taken to either align or not with other states in pursuit of kind of hard national security or security objectives. So that's a really terrible summary of realism that would give uh, any real you know, <laughs> realist theorist like, uh, uh, like Stephen Walt uh, a heartache. But I think let's to, be, to, to make it more clear in terms of this discussion, there are characteristics of the whole notion of human rights and its history that tend to be to the realist somewhat off-putting. So for example, I'll give you a couple of, of ways to kind of maybe bring it home. So number one, we've been talking a lot about international institutions and, and multilateral bodies. And we talked a little bit about John Bolton being a proxy for this realist theory. And this is one of the biggest critiques that realists have of human rights, of international human rights is, Human rights has been, since its origin, really heavily associated with international law, with multilateral bodies, because at the end of the day, you have to have that in a way because there's no other like global enforcement mechanism, like a, a global police to deal with human rights. So you, we, we deal in, in human rights in our multilateral relations through these institutions and on the basis of international law. That's not to say that Human rights isn't primarily a matter of bilateral diplomacy and foreign policy, but for, I think, a lot of people, human rights is, is heavily associated with international law and multilateral institutions. So I think for the realist, they see human rights and concern about individuals in another state. And the, the idea that a state would bind itself on the basis of international law based on concern about people in other countries is somewhat off-putting. I think there are a couple of other critiques from the realist camp that I think are worth sort of paying attention to. Another one of those is that when a state like the United States, if, if it is guided by realist sensibilities, it's less likely to carry out costly in terms of both financial and in human terms, adventures on the basis of things that are not aligned with vital national security interests. If I went back to grad school and remembered one thing, this is like the thing that they press into your head is that the U.S. has vital national security interests and the rights of individuals in other countries don't constitute vital national security interests to the realist. The history of the United States is it is the sea lines of communication and free passage through major bodies of water and with that the global flow of energy and more or less preventing the outbreak of conflict through the projection of power into major parts of the world where all of those things I mentioned earlier take place, so Asia and the Middle East. The human rights of individuals in Libya or in any other place that don't relate to those things at a more fundamental level, our concern for those things would merely be an invitation to get involved in something that's not really a part of our interest. So the realist has some heartburn with that. And I think that is kind of the broader rubric under which the kind of the everyday realist who may not care about the original theory says, at the end of the day, the vernacular is, I'm a realist and therefore I believe that yes, the United States may care about values and we don't really want anybody to get hurt, but there are circumstances and many of them in which the US is going to have to prioritize our interests over those so-called values. And by values, there mean the human rights of people in other countries. So. So realism 
has its origins in these theories of really kind of alliances and the way states deal with each other and balancing acts and so forth when it comes to the outbreak of conflict. But it has become the term by which people mean we are going to ignore human rights because we have a set of material and security interests that require it of us. That's a good way to put it, that that's how it's come to mean. And I think in in general terms, human rights can be conceptualized as well as kind of altruistic. And it's just a, a benefit of wealthy countries to pay attention to these issues that other poorer countries that don't have the liberty to pay attention to. So I think it's important to break it down more, and, and we can talk about then the counter critique of, so why is it in national security interest to care about what's happening to the Rohingya people? Mm-hmm. Why, why does it matter to the average American or German or French person, you know, the conflicts that are so far away or abuses that are so far away. And we can discuss that when you break that down, that I think you do show uh, pretty quickly and pretty easily how it can impact your own country's stability, trade alliances, security alliances. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a lot of good and supportable rationales for why the United States and why more specifically people involved in national security really should maybe critically assess some of those realist arguments and maybe reevaluate the role of human rights in national security policy because I think there are good reasons to do so. So let's go through a couple of what those are. So one, my view is that the United States has helped to construct this international security architecture that more or less preserves a certain kind of status quo. And there's a good reason for that. I mean, we want to enable legitimate governments to exercise what Weber would have called a legitimate monopoly on the use of force or violence in their own countries. That's a good thing. When that balance is out of whack, as we talked about earlier, and the United States is preserving the status quo in cases where there are repressive or oppressive governments, in my view, it's part of the bargain with the role that the United States plays to try to temper that effect. In other words, We can and we should because we basically have played a pretty strong intervening role in the way the world is organized at a security level. And so we have, I think, an obligation. There are many who might dispute that, but I think that's part of the deal. I also think in some cases, whether or not that role is is acknowledged by others and whether or not that condition endures in terms of kind of our active role in preserving the international security architecture, There are many cases and situations, one that you mentioned in Myanmar, for example, where the United States should because it can. In other words, we might not have put the Tatmada and the existing government in place in Myanmar, but we certainly wield a lot of influence with that government. And so I believe that the United States has an obligation, especially in the face and response to the horrendous atrocities that have occurred in Rakhine State to try to wield as much pressure in concert with a host of other states and international organizations that are doing the same because we can actually do something in situations like that to forestall and and minimize the amount of, of damage. I don't think we did enough under either administration, meaning Obama or President Trump, but I think that's a case in which we could have and and should have done more. And that is going to have to involve people who wear the uniform in the US military. It is going to have to involve people that undertake intelligence cooperation and sharing. It's going to have to involve people who sit at the White House and deal with counterterrorism strategy. So it is not just the person who sits 
in the Human Rights Bureau who's hammering the table, as both of us often did, but it's going to have to be someone who knows their military counterpart across the table and can make decisions on the basis of prudence, but also out of a sense of obligation for what the United States can do under those circumstances. So I think those are a couple of good reasons. There's also, I think, the very active role that we have undertaken in terms of our tactical security cooperation that brings with it a set of responsibilities. I don't think we should cut off all security cooperation, and I don't think security cooperation is necessarily on its face a bad thing. I do think that security cooperation is a form of political engagement that involves higher stakes because we're dealing with lethality. We're dealing with armed forces, people who wear the uniform. We're dealing with arms transfers and weapons um, in many cases. And it, I would actually say in many places around the world, it's a good thing that the United States military is involved in advising and mentoring partners, especially when those partners are open to and willing to engage both on the basis of mutual interests, but also believing in the importance not only of capability, but the importance of constraint and accountability for security forces. When you don't have those things, mutual interests, a commitment to not only capabilities and constraints, and you're still undertaking security cooperation, especially in the midst of the potential of armed conflict or where the security forces play an outsized political role relative to the population of those countries in terms of internal security or, or other forms, that can be a high risk gambit for the United States, not only in terms of the potential for contributing to or actually enabling human rights violations, like the excessive use of force or arbitrary detention or restrictions on civil society, but also because of perceptions of the population of the role that the United States is playing relative to those things. And whether or not there's any public outcry about it, I think if, if we know that certain segments of the public are suffering at the hands of security institutions that we are supporting, whether it's the specific units and whether they're restricted by the Leahy law or not, we really have a responsibility to take a close look at that. And I don't think that's just confined to the kind of visible forms of military cooperation that your listeners and probably you and I think about, but also forms of intelligence that we provide that enable our partners to undertake security actions. It's the exchange of information about individuals who for all intents and purposes, might have some association with, with armed groups or terrorists, but in many cases don't, and in many cases are actually members of the political opposition or, or civil society, and we have seen that happen. And so there are, there are a lot of ways in which the U.S. should pay attention to human rights in places where their security sort of interests are the greatest that I don't know that we always do as consistently as we, as we should. And for those of your listeners who are involved in those parts of the bureaucracy, I would recommend that each of them take this idea of human rights and seriously enough to know how it can have a bearing on our partnerships in America's role more broadly in the world. Great. Well, thanks, Dan. Let's go ahead and tie it back to the scholarly community. You've had a chance to meet a few doctoral students at the university, and you discuss concepts and ideas that you would recommend new scholars look at who are interested in this topic. Yeah, that's a great question, and I really had a great time meeting the students, and I hope there are some students that are out there listening. And I know a lot of your students in, in this university's community have a lot of practical experience, in some cases many years of it, um, which I think brings a lot to any 
reading of academic literature, but here's what I would suggest, because I, I went back to school kind of late in my career as after I had been at the department for a decade or so, I went back to get my master's. And I believe that I learned that, both through a combination of experience and my academic experience, that as a matter of principle, the more you can stray out of your strict discipline, like sort of disciplinary reading list, to become a little wiser about what your colleagues and your classmates are dealing with and learning about in their lane of traffic, the better. And in this particular case, what I really mean is, particularly for people studying global security or security studies, there's a tendency to really stick to a predefined set of curricula that deals in international relations theory, a lot of sort of state and systems level theories. We'd mentioned realism, but obviously constructivism and, and international liberalism and all the other variants on a theme there, even to look at things like democratic peace theory and democratic transition theory, which are all really useful. And then people will look at issues like old conventional strategic studies like non-proliferation and, and nuclear deterrence theories and all of those things. And then I think that doesn't leave a lot of room sometimes to get into what we're talking about, which is international institutions, international law, questions of the relationship between the rights of the individual and human rights and, and national security. In fact, my security studies program, there was no real focus at all on, on human rights. And as we talked about at the outset of the podcast, suddenly I had to contend with those issues. So I think for anybody, it's good to know and it's important to understand international relations theory and, and the main arguments. I probably wasn't a great ambassador for representing my understanding of international relations theory, but I think I've got the basic concepts down because not only might you want to use those in defense of your own worldview or your own writing, academic writing or, or otherwise, but you might want to think about how you might critique those arguments and critique those theories and how in so doing you can promote an alternative perspective or, or point of view. And so from my point of view, for those of your listeners who are actively interested in, in human rights and their importance in foreign policy, I believe that not enough of us on that side know nearly enough about what is driving the national security community, the national security practitioner, what is driving someone who wears a uniform or not to say human rights aren't a matter of my concern, I've got other things that are more important. What are those other things? Why is there inconsistency or even incompatibility between the two? Why does the national security community not view some of these things as important and should they? So that's kind of more for the, I guess, uh, practitioner maybe than the academic. I think for the academic who's interested in, in international human rights, I think paying attention to you is probably a good idea for hey, this I university like community <laughs> with, with all of your scholarship and writing for my part. I think getting the foundational political philosophy, uh, at least an introduction to it, is really important, not only in the Western canon, but I think also in the formulation of the Universal Declaration. There were a lot of other religions and philosophies that were invoked in which there is some consistency. I think really understanding arguments that pitch this idea of cultural relativism against universal concepts. There's a lot of scholarship out on that. Um, it's one of the major debates within the human rights field that I think has to be understood and people should have a clear idea of what that debate looks like. There is another active debate with a lot of academic literature that represents the debate between 
those who view civil and political rights um, and largely kind of the freedom from things against those who view human rights as a more positive agenda where governments should be more actively obligated to provide things for, for people in terms of economic well-being. These are the so-called economic, cultural, and social rights. I think a lot of us have looked way too far past those rights as important because that's led to the third debate, which I actively encourage your listeners to start following, which is between a progressive liberal critique of human rights as being not satisfactory in its ability to engender greater equality, and especially economic equality. That critique associates the liberal human rights movement with free market fundamentalism without paying close enough attention to the way in which that's enabled political elites to avoid having to fulfill economic, social obligations. I think there's a valid counter critique to that, which I also encourage people to pay attention to. So that's another academic debate that's out there right now. And I think there are a host of other important issues that really people should pay closer attention to. We talked a little bit about women and peace and security, but also I think women's rights is, that's one of the most important issues of the day in this country and has probably been understudied and under noticed. I certainly plan to change that for myself uh, continuing forward. So in any case, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of scholarship out there right now that's that's really interesting and exciting and offers a lot of opportunities for, for new thinking. That's great. Thank you so much, Dan. I think that's just a wonderful recommendation that the beauty of education and starting any new program is really to expand. It's to expose yourself to new ideas, new concepts, new ways of thinking of things, and that's just a a really important recommendation that you bring up that students need to really try and and sometimes in their ways initiate to get out of their traditional path of what maybe traditional security studies has been in the past looking at gender studies, at human rights broadly, at at food, housing, these things that have not been traditionally thought of as security, but looking at the kind of holistic human security. So thank you. That's really important. Well, I think we'll wrap up there. I really appreciated this discussion. If you have any final thoughts, or I, um, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate being invited. I had a ton of fun. I hope I didn't talk too much, but I, <laughs> but I really enjoyed our conversation. All great. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU. American Military University.